Several years ago, I was serving as the high school and college pastor at my home church in Louisville, and I had a guy that I had known since I was born. I grew up there, and this guy was was the kind of guy that would bug you to death about stuff, and we don't have anybody here like that. <laughs> but anyway, we don't... So this guy was one of those guys. You know what I'm talking about? They're, they're in here. And so anyway, so he would, he would not take no for an answer. He wanted to make pancakes for the high school students on Sunday morning for Sunday school. And I thought, dude, that is a, that's just, no. Especially you. No. You're not making pancakes, man. I know you. And he wouldn't take no for an answer. I finally thought, all right, who cares? Whatever. I'm just being picky. Dude, go make your pancakes. Okay? So he goes down and, and goes into the kitchen, and, and he starts whipping up his pancakes, and they, all the kids love it, and they all eat them, and, 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 you know, he took care of it all. And so then the next day when I go into work, Monday morning, I get an angry, angry old lady on the phone. Angry. I'd known her forever, too. She was 110 when I was born, you know. She was still, she was really old. And so, man, she was an angry old woman. But she ran the kitchen. Oh, boy. She said, what did you let happen? I said, I don't know what you're talking about. I have no idea. What? I just quit yesterday. I don't work here anymore. Uh, she said, he made a complete mess out of this place. And, of course, pancake batter had sat overnight, which turns into concrete, you know. It's, and so I go down to the kitchen, and I, and I thought, oh, my goodness gracious. The, the, it, it was like he had taken the industrial mixer and just turned it on and said, watch this, you know. And, that, and there it went. I mean, it was everywhere. And I'm not lying to you. I don't think there was a square inch of that kitchen that wasn't at least within a foot, if, you make, if that makes sense, of where that batter had hit. And the kitchen was a large area, larger than our kitchen, big, big industrial type kitchen and pancake batter everywhere. And I scrubbed and jackhammered and I mean everything to get that, that pancake batter off there. I worked all day long on that stuff. I had placed breakfast in his hands and he totally ruined it. I mean, just ruined it. Now this morning I did the same thing with our deacons and, and, and I placed, listen, I love breakfast. When I go to Cracker Barrel, some of you get, you know, like some yogurt or whatever. No, you know, I'm going, we're, we're getting, Herschel's favorite or whatever it is. We're getting the sunrise sampler. We go for breakfast. We're eating breakfast. And I love breakfast food. So this morning we had a men's breakfast. And so again, I placed breakfast in the hands of somebody else. And I will say this, the deacons came through again. It was incredible. We had, we had biscuits and homemade gravy from some kind of grease mixture or something. Some of y'all do that stuff. It was really good. I don't know how you make it, but it was good. And then we had some bacon and sausage and we had what did I already say eggs? We had eggs. And then, and then somebody brought donuts for dessert. And so it was, it was amazing. And so anyway, but, but it, it's interesting when you, when you release something, you say, all right, I'm going to, we're going to do this and you're going to handle it. I'm going to give it to you. I'm not real good at that. I'll just be honest with you. I like control over stuff. That's just, I, boy, I tell you what, I've been burned by the pancake guy before. You know what I'm saying? And so I, well, hold on. But it's so, it's so refreshing and it's so amazing when you give something to somebody that you're just not sure how they're going to handle it and they come through. And they do it in such a way that it's an absolute blessing to you, just like the deacons this morning and the last breakfast that we had. I mean, just incredible. And they do such a wonderful job, and it's really comforting. Now, in life, what we're going to look at today 
is what we do, what we can experience, what we can expect when we take something so personal to us as our sin and the shame that comes from it and we give it to Jesus. And we're going to see what he did with it. Something far more important than biscuits and gravy, what he does with our sin and our shame. If you got your Bible, why don't you turn with me to John chapter 8. John 8. If you don't know anything about the Bible, don't let that stop you this morning. There's one there uh, in the chair in front of you or in the pew in front of you. Uh, it'll be very similar to the translation that I'm using this morning. You may have brought a Bible and it may be a little bit different. But somehow, whether it's in a physical copy or if you've got a smartphone or a tablet, somehow get to God's Word this morning and look at John chapter 8. John is over in the New Testament. The Bible's divided New Testament, Old Testament. You look over in the New Testament, John is the fourth book. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're going to be in chapter 8. Now, there's... A little bit of, of historical dispute on this particular story, this Bible story we're going to look at this morning. Should it be included in the scripture or should it not? Should I be preaching from this or should I not? Should it be thrown out or, or, or kept in there? And, here, and here's why. If you look there, some of your, your Bibles probably put this in brackets, if not all of your Bibles, and it says something over to the side, maybe in a footnote or a side note, that says many early manuscripts did not include chapter 7, verse 53 through 8, 11. They didn't include this. And so, so what you have is a disputed passage of Scripture. And I'm going to try to bore you with all the details, but I tried to do my homework on it this week to say, should I even be reading this and should I even be on this. And, and commentators are somewhat divided, I'll be honest with you. In fact, one commentator that I read said, nope, it shouldn't be in there, and he didn't even comment on it. That's all he said. It shouldn't be in there, and he just moved on to the next. But the rest of them, the overwhelming majority of the folks that I read this week, very reputable uh, scholars I read, said it, it doesn't belong to John, meaning John didn't write it. If you look at this particular set of verses, this passage of Scripture, and if you study it in comparison to what John wrote, the rest of his gospel, it doesn't fit according to the words that he used and the grammar and so on. It's just, it, you can tell that the fourth gospel writer did not write this part. So where did it come from? Where should it be attached? Basically what I concluded based upon the study was that it was a historically reliable story that had been recorded about Jesus, among other stories that had been collected, but it didn't really have a home in the Gospels. Nobody could figure out exactly, okay, now, where does this fit chronologically? Where should it be attached? And so on. And so for years, it just kind of dangled out there as something that, yes, this happened, but we're not sure that it so what I concluded was that it is, it is historically reliable. This actually did happen. It was, it was a story that was circulated just like all the rest of the stories about Jesus. And it is biblically consistent, meaning that it doesn't diverge theologically from anything else that we see in Scripture. And so because of those two things, I feel pretty confident in saying we have here the Word of God that can speak to us this morning. Okay, so just so you, in case you're wondering, what are those brackets for? What does all that mean? That's as best I can summarize it shortly. That's kind of what we're dealing with. So we're going to treat this as if it is God's word. Here's a legitimate interaction that Jesus has, and there's something the Holy Spirit can teach us through this. All right, so we're going to kind of go through this verse by verse, and then we're going to look at the outline. Okay, some of you, you're looking at the outline. You got excited this morning. It's got color on it. You're so pumped. You like color, and there's color on the outline. I did that just for you. And others look at that, and you've already turned it over because you're confused already. And what? 
Huh? Okay, we'll clear it all up. And you, if, you're, if you're confused, just enjoy the color, okay? So we're going to look this morning at chapter 8, and we're going to work through this, and then we'll go to the outline. All right, so in, at the end of chapter 7, it says that everybody goes to their home, uh, and, and then uh, Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. Now, just as a side note, I mentioned this a minute ago, Jesus didn't have a place to go. It's interesting. Everybody else goes to their homes. Jesus has nowhere to go. We think, and I'll reiterate this, just because I always say it, and I've said it for a decade here, and I'm going to keep saying it until I'm blue in the face, until we actually believe it. We think often that if we follow Jesus, all of our problems in life are going to be taken care of, and we're going to live healthy, wealthy, and it's going to be perfect. And, and then we read the story of Jesus, and he didn't even have a place to live. And yet, our lives are going to be perfect. You see how they're not congruent? They don't match up. Okay? So if you're experiencing difficulties in life, it's not because you don't have enough faith. It's not because God doesn't love you. It's not because God is punishing you. It's because that's life. It's life. That's just part of the deal. And so there is hope, however, when we place our eyes on Jesus. The song says the things of this world will, will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. So this morning, look at that. See, Jesus didn't even have a place to go. If you're experiencing that kind of thing, difficult problems, understand Jesus knows how you feel. Anyway, verse 2, at dawn it says, he went into the temple complex again, and all the people were coming to him. Picture the crowd. He sat down and he began to teach them. Now, I wonder what he taught about. I really do. We don't, have, we don't know this. I wonder what the subject was on that day. As everybody gathers around and Jesus again begins to teach God's truths and his word, I wonder maybe it was something like the Sermon on the Mount where he's telling them, here's, here's what the, the, God, the, the word of God says, and yet let me tell you really what it means. You, you've kind of memorized it. You've got a wooden understanding of this. Let me tell you what God's word actually means. I wonder if that was what it was. We don't really know, so I'm speculating. But it's interesting that, that, that he's teaching and the Pharisees in just a moment are going to drop a teaching moment right in his lap. They're going to give him the chance to teach not only in word, but also through his actions, what God has to say about a particular subject. And make no mistake, Jesus in his words and his life, they are absolutely tied together. He is not duplicitous in any way. He is not hypocritical in any way. He doesn't say one thing and do another. There's perfect consistency between what he taught and how he lived. And then look at verse 3. Here comes the teaching moment. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. So they drag her out, interrupt the teaching that Jesus has got going on. I mean, picture the scene, caught in the act of adultery. You don't have to use your imagination much to understand what they're saying right there. That they found her in an adulterous relationship in the middle of it, drag her out of bed and get her in the center of the temple complex and make her stand in the middle with whatever clothing she may or may not have had on. They drag her out and they throw her right there at Jesus' feet. She's caught doing what violates the law in, in, the, in the books of Moses and she's publicly shamed for it. Now, I don't know if you've been paying attention, but this is what our world does every single minute of every single day. We are addicted to it. Social media, by the way, is not a plus for our society. In case you haven't noticed, I know some of you like to log everything that you do on Facebook just for posterity or for, you know, whoever, you know, at Facebook headquarters might be listening and wanting to know what you're doing every single day. Because trust me, they're watching. Okay. Anyway, 
Totally different sermon. But, but, but social media and all that stuff has not been helpful. You know why? Because all it's done is fuel our outrage and our addiction to shaming one another. We find somebody doing something that we don't like. We find somebody doing something that goes against whatever society might say. And we just pile on until they cave and they do something different. These guys drag this lady out. And they're outraged. Make her stand in the middle, shaming her publicly in front of all these people who were having church that morning with Jesus. They shame her publicly. Verse 4, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? At least I will give the Pharisees credit. At at least they had the right source for their, their thoughts on morality. They, they were looking to God's word. They knew the Bible. They knew the Old Testament. They said, this is wrong. This, this goes against what God has said. And we know that adultery is a sin, certainly, and they knew that. And so they knew in, in, in Leviticus chapter 20 that it says that the punishment for that kind of sin was to be death by stoning. Now, interestingly enough, just this, again, I, there, there are 18 different sermons that could come from this, just so you know. Where's the dude? That's what I want to say. Where's he at? Is he just faster than her? <laughs> Here he goes. <laughs> you can't catch me. I mean, we, no. I doubt that's what happened. You know what? It's a bunch of dudes shaming a woman. That's what's happening. Because why? Because they can. And again, a whole bunch of different sermons that we could have here, but just the guys know where to be found. They're, they're going to call out the one who really, in this moment, can't really do anything about it. And that's what's happening. Anyway, what would this rabbi say about it? What would this teacher named Jesus have to say about this sin that we just caught this lady doing? The punishment's supposed to be death. What's he going to say? And then look at verse 6, as if they really care about right or wrong. Look at verse 6. They asked this to what? To trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. So it's a trap. They got something else in mind. Honestly, they don't care about what's right and wrong. They don't care. They just want to be the authority on what's right and wrong. They're outraged that they're losing their power to Jesus. He's gaining a following. Power is slipping away from our hands and they're mad about it. You ever felt that way? Listen, if you're a conservative Christian right now, you probably feel that way. Power is slipping away. We no longer control culture, do we? And guess what? The Pharisees were outraged by it. Mad. We got a whole bunch of conservative Christians that are ticked off right now. You know why? I would venture to say some of them have righteous anger that what's happening is wrong. But many of them, and hear me on this, many of them are simply mad they've lost their power in culture. And it's pharisaical. And the Pharisees show up and they say, Jesus, what are you going to do about it? And they were trying to trap him. They're losing their authority and they want it back. And if they can get rid of this guy, now they've got it back. They don't really care about this woman. They don't even really care that she did something wrong. They just care about their power and their authority. And they try to trap him because here's the trap. If he said that there's nothing wrong with what she did, that that's not punishable by stoning, then he goes against the law of Moses and he's a false teacher. If, however, he says that she should be stoned and he says go right ahead, then he goes against the law of Rome, which gave only execution power to the Roman government, not to the Jews. So either way he goes, he's trapped. 
He's either going to be a false teacher or a rebel. And the Pharisees say, man, we are something. Look at what we just did. We got him. There's no way out of this. We got him. And then it says, Jesus, this is, this is just great. He stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. What? You ever read the Bible and you just say, huh? What on earth is he doing? So what do you have to say about this? What you, I mean, honestly, if you did that to somebody, you ask them a question, a very serious, important question, and they just go right on the whiteboard something, scribble. It doesn't make any sense until you understand that Jesus wasn't in for a power struggle here. It's not going to get on their level. They're trying to draw him into their outrage. They, they want an argument. They, they want to fight. He, he doesn't thrive, however, on outrage. And he doesn't thrive on trying to win arguments. He, he knew what the scripture said. I want you to turn back over in the Old Testament. We're going to read a couple of Old Testament scriptures this morning because I really think this reinforces why did Jesus not worry about getting involved in a fight with these guys? What, what should drive our engagement with culture when we disagree with them, when, when they're doing something wrong? What should drive that? I think, I think some scriptures will help you. Look, in, in, we're going to both of them be in the, in the book of Psalms. In Psalm chapter 2, I want you to look at this. This is actually about the Messiah, about Jesus. It's a, it's a prophecy about him. Psalm chapter 2, if you, if you if need some help, just kind of turn to the middle of your Bible. You get somewhere probably in Psalms, maybe in Proverbs. Turn back to the left a little bit to get to chapter 2. It says, why do the nations rebel? Other older translations, which I actually like a little bit better, says, why do the nations rage? Why are they so upset? And the people's plot in vain. The kings of earth take their stand, and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let us tear off their chains and free ourselves from their restraints, they say. And then look at verse 4 of chapter 2. The one enthroned in heaven is really nervous because everybody's upset and he's not sure what to do. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. Do you realize that the way that culture is going now, and folks that think they are so powerful now, on any side of any issue, the Lord sits and laughs. In fact, it says the Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have consecrated my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. He's talking about Jesus today. I have become your father. He's, he's previewing what's going what's to happen. The son will be sent from the father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like pottery. So now kings be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the son or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion for his anger may ignite at any moment. And those who take refuge in him are happy. You know what Jesus is writing? I have no idea. But you know what he's thinking? <laughs> you guys don't get it. You guys don't understand. You don't know who I am. He, he, they, they're, they're enraged at losing their power on this earth. And Jesus draws in the dirt. Psalm chapter 46. You want to turn to the right just a little bit. Again, for those who are very nervous about what's going on in society now, and certainly we understand it is largely a godless society, but at the same time, I want you to know God is still in control. Look at Psalm 46, verse 6. Nations rage, kingdoms topple, the earth melts 
when he lifts his voice. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come see the works of the Lord who brings devastation on the earth. He makes wars cease throughout the earth. He shatters bows and cuts spears to pieces. He burns up the chariots. Stop your fighting or others may say cease striving or be still and know that I am God. Exalted among the nations, exalted on the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Jesus knew in that moment getting a power struggle. Because I've got all the power. Listen, this morning we don't trust in what society is doing and their outrage and hope that we just win you know, this particular office or that particular office or we win these particular battles. We trust in the name of the Lord our God who never changes and he is victorious both now and forever. You've got nothing to worry about. Jesus right then knew he had nothing to worry about. So he doesn't have to get drawn into their arguments. They're trying to trap him, show him as a false teacher, as a rebel. They want to dismiss him and they feel like that if they can do this, then now they have their power back. Instead of fighting with them, Jesus just writes in the dirt. What he wrote doesn't matter. But what we learn from him is that we don't have to get dragged down in all the useless, foolish arguments that society is in. We can remove ourselves and trust in the Lord just like Jesus did. He's not interested in defending himself, unlike we are most of the time. He's not interested in fighting for power, but he is interested in defending this woman whose sin and shame are now in his hands. Verse 7, it says, when they persisted in questioning him, they won't stop. He's trying to get them to stop by ignoring them, by, by doing something else. They won't stop. Yet the more outraged they display, the more foolish they're going to look when he begins to speak. He stood up and he said to them, The one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Some of you memorize this as, He who is without sin, what? Cast the first stone. Isn't it interesting this become part of society? Again, 18 different sermons. We like to pick and choose what we learn from Jesus. We don't really like all that he brings, but we like little things. Don't judge lest you be judged. Whoever's without sin, cast the first stone. Uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We, we like certain teachings of Jesus. We just don't like him. Because if he's who he says he is, then we answer to him. We don't like answering to anybody. We're an autonomous people. We don't like that. But Jesus did say, the one among you who is without sin, you go ahead. You throw that first stone. If you're sinless, go ahead and punish her. And then it says he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. Now just picture it. All these people around, all these outraged scribes and Pharisees, this half-naked woman standing there in her sin and shame, and Jesus stands up, doesn't even answer their question, and just says, whoever's sinless, y'all go ahead and kill her. And then he goes right back to writing in the ground. And it says, when they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. They each knew, you see him looking around, <laughs> with that look on their face like, I thought we had him. <laughs> Doggone it, he got us again. And then that look that washes over them that says, he's right. And then that look of guilt, as the older men especially remember all that time of sin. More to remember. They drop their stones and they walk away. The younger guys are looking around. 
when they see the older men do it and they they realize if those guys are guilty certainly we are too because that's who we look up to and everybody drops those rocks and they're all stunned i would imagine wanting to say something but words fail them in that moment they're just astounded at this guy who's bent down writing in the ground He handled sin and shame very differently from what was expected or what was common because he was anything but what was expected or what was common. In fact, we know he was God. And he handled then and he handles today sin and shame far differently from the way that we do. The end of verse 9, it says, Only he was left with the woman in the center. So there's nobody else there. Nobody but Jesus and the woman. There's no crowd anymore. They've all dispersed, it seems. There, there's, there's no scribes. There's no Pharisees. It's just a sinner and a Savior. Standing right there. Now, this is what it was and what it will be like, by the way. What it is like even today. Do you realize that all of us, both today and one day at the judgment of Jesus Christ, we stand before the Lord alone. You don't stand before the Lord with me standing over you and saying, hey, Clint was a really good youth minister. He, he did a good job. You know, I had a couple of kids that went through that, and man, they, man, they really liked him. And he taught them some good things. And, and he, you know, he was a good Bible teacher, and, and he loved them, and he did a lot of extra good things for the church. And do you know where Clint is going to stand before Jesus? On his own. Not based upon how good of a youth minister he was, but whether or not he knew Jesus Christ. And We all will stand and we all do stand there today just like that sinner woman all on our own with Jesus Christ. And His judgment of us won't depend on what anybody else says we have done or not done or their opinions of us. And I wonder in this moment if this woman is relieved or terrified. Everybody's gone. And here's the guy who commanded the room, if you will, and now it's just them. And then verse 10. When he stood up, he said to her, you're so pathetic. These guys are right, you know. You deserve to be punished. I mean, you're gross. It's unbelievable what you've done. You're worthless. You throw yourself at some guy. It's not even your husband. I mean, I can't. I cannot understand why. Don't you know what God? Don't you know the law? You not understand how how big a deal this is. And, I, and if you do, how stupid! What are you doing? He said to her, "Woman," which is a term of respect, by the way. Where are they? Is no one? condemned you? You know in Romans chapter 8 it says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he has set us free from the law of sin and death. You realize that in Jesus there is no condemnation for your sin. There is no shame heaped on you for your sin. It was all heaped on Jesus Christ on the cross. Do you even understand that? I want to say to myself and to others. Do you understand that? Do you get that? Because what I see out of so many Christians is we walk around still burying ourselves for our sins. And Jesus says, where are they that are qualified to judge you? Anybody sinless? Anybody a righteous judge? He says, where'd they go? And she looks at him in verse 11 and says, well, there's no one, Lord. 
mean, imagine her feeling at that moment. Maybe she was terrified. Maybe she thought she was going to be told, just not publicly, but told at least privately how worthless and sinful and terrible she is. And Jesus says, where'd they all go? And then he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on do not sin anymore. She's got to be humbled, surprised, grateful to the Lord. And he says, backing up John chapter 3, verse 17, he says, I forgive you, now go and live like you've been forgiven. John three seventeen, by the way, says that, that God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through the Son the world might be saved. And that's what Jesus is showing. I'm not condemning you, I'm here to forgive you and to save you and to set you free. Now, we're going to apply this as we close in just a few moments. We're going to apply this with what's on your outline. I've given you all the truth and all the explanation. And we're going to start, for those of you that are the visual and process learners this morning, we're going to start with a flow chart that took me a long time to put on this piece of paper because it was thoroughly confusing to me. I had to show it to Andrew because he's that kind of guy. I said, this, does this work at all? Does this... And he wasn't sure either, so I don't know. And that's his expertise. But here's what I want to work through as we, as we get to a close this morning. What do you do with sin and shame? You see there you start at the top. If, if, if you're following along, all the, there's no blanks on the, on the flow chart. Does this sin matter? Your answer might be, culture's answer would be, no. Well, not really. And then that one, of course, quickly points to read the Bible. It's kind of where it ends there. Sin does matter. The Bible tells us that we are born sinful. That we are born as sinners condemned to hell. Sin does matter. So every single sin matters. No way to say, well, this is a bigger sin, so it matters more. This is a smaller sin, that doesn't really matter as much. There may be a different level of consequence, but they all matter. They're all sin. So for our context today, we're going to say in the affirmative that yes, this does sin, this sin does matter. And then the next question you see from yes there, is it mine? Is this sin mine? Is this something that I have done? Is this my sin? And then you may say, well, no, you know, this, what I'm dealing with is the consequence of someone else's sin. Everybody's got that kind of stuff. No, it's just not mine. I'm dealing with somebody else's. And then the next question becomes, am I, just like Jesus asked, am I sinless? And if your answer is yes, I would encourage you again to go read the Bible. And, and then be honest with yourself. Go read the Bible. The Bible tells us everybody has sinned. Every single person. Everybody. Even your grandmother. Sweet as she may be. Was a Sinner. Sinner. I got two living grandmothers. They may be listening to the podcast. I have no idea. But sinners, am I sinless? You may say yes. And I would say, go read the Bible. And you may say, all right, I admit it. No, I'm not sinless. And then the next question becomes, do I want to follow Jesus? And you may say, well, you know, if I'm honest, not really. I just, I just, this person did something wrong to me. It's not my sin. They did something wrong. And so if your answer is there, then go ahead and punish Throw that first stone. Go ahead. You got it. Go ahead and throw it online, on social media, in those backdoor conversations. Go ahead and throw those stones. Go right ahead. 
But if you say, you know what, I really, really do. I, I, in my heart, I want to follow Jesus. And if that is your answer, then yes, I do. Then the remedy here is to forgive. There is there's no middle ground. There's no middle ground. You're either going to punish or you're going to forgive. That's it. We like to say, well, I'll forgive if they apologize. Did Jesus wait for us to apologize before he went to the cross? In fact, what did he say on the cross? Father, what? Forgive them, for they don't even know what they're doing. He didn't wait for an apology. Do you realize that the people that you probably need to forgive most are never going to apologize? Never. Ain't going to happen. They don't care. They don't even realize they've done something. The people you need to forgive most are probably never, ever, ever going to come to you and say, I'm so sorry for what I did. And do you know, however, what the Bible says for believers in Jesus Christ that the requirement is to forgive? What? They didn't apologize. Forgiveness is a one-way street. It is a canceling of a debt that is owed. They did something to you, essentially taking something from you, and they owe you something, and forgiveness says, I will no longer hold that debt against you. Now, reconciliation is a two-way street. You can't be reconciled with someone who will not apologize and do what they, they need to do to make that relationship right, but you can forgive them, and you can no longer carry that in your heart as you release them from that debt. And when it comes up again, you say, no, 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 that has been forgiven. I've been forgiven by Jesus, and therefore I forgive that debt just as Jesus has forgiven me. The remedy for someone else's sin is to forgive. So we go back to, is it mine? So we've worked through all that. So if it's somebody else's sin, the remedy is to forgive. And then you might say, well, hold on. This is my sin. I, in one sense, I'm that, I'm that woman who, who's been thrown at Jesus' feet, and I've got this sin and shame in my life that I've done. And man, when I read that Bible character, that's me. And then the same question comes up, do I want to follow Jesus? And I guarantee you, you're probably saying, yes, 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 but we might be living, no, I don't really want to. Why? Because we're punishing ourselves. At what point are you going to let yourself out of jail? At what point will you stop trying to do what the cross has already done? Which is to forgive you and to pay for your sin. Those are the rhetorical questions that I'd love to ask us this morning. Yeah, I know Jesus died for my sin, but you don't understand. I mean, I feel really bad about this. I mean, I, I deserve some sort of punishment. It's not fair that Jesus would have to die for this. I need to pay for this too. And when we do that, do you know what we say about the cross of Christ? Not enough. Not enough. Not enough. Needs more. Needs me. Needs me to feel really bad. Needs me to punish myself. Needs me to live in shame. <laughs> but if you want to follow Jesus, even in your own sin, do you know what you do? You repent. You repent. That simply means I've been going this way, and now I'm going this way. I'm leaving all that behind, and I'm walking this way. That means I repent. Jesus told the woman, I don't condemn you, you're forgiven, and so go and what? Sin no more. Next time that you're dealing with sin this afternoon... Yours or someone else's. Pull out your handy flow chart. Here's, here's what we're going to do. Pull out your flow. In fact, you could probably fold that over just enough 
And you could fit that somewhere where you could pull that out, laminate that. There's your handy sin flow chart right there. Anytime you need it, I'm dealing with sin right now. Is it mine? No, it's not mine. It's that dude's. What do I do with that? Yes, it is mine. What do I do? Isn't it interesting how Jesus handled sin and shame? He forgave and simply called us to repentance. He didn't shame. He didn't live in outrage. He took the punishment on the cross for what we deserved and extended forgiveness instead. Now, for those of you that are thoroughly confused by the flow chart, we're going to end with three things that are just in order right there on your outline, and they're going to be on the screen, and you've been waiting all day. Some of you have already guessed, and I guarantee you, you're wrong. Maybe. Some of you are pretty smart. I, I, I talked to you on the way out the door, and you, hey, I got two out of three today. All right. Three vital truths, just in summary. Here's, here's the way we close with this. Number one, Jesus never takes sin lightly, but he does give sinners the chance to start over. He, he never takes sin lightly. He did not take this woman's sin lightly. It wasn't if he said, hey, everybody does that. You know, it's, it's fine. Just, you know. Don't do it as much. At least don't let it be known. It's not what he says. He says, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. It's a big deal. He doesn't take sin lightly, but he gives sinners a chance to start. I wonder, are we the same way? What we do is we stop with the first part. We don't take sin lightly. Boom. Woke up some of you. We don't take sin lightly. We don't take sin lightly. And what do we do? We're outraged. You know what Pharisees didn't do? They didn't take sin lightly. But they never gave sinners a chance to start over. And that's where Jesus comes in. And he says, I forgive you. Now go and sin no more. This isn't isn't a small deal. Sin's a big deal. But I'm giving you the chance to start over. Secondly, the cure for hypocrisy is awareness of my own sinfulness. The cure for hypocrisy... I don't want to be a hypocrite. I mean, who am I to say anything? Listen, be aware of your own sinfulness. It runs deep, doesn't it? It's born with it. And yet the cross of Jesus Christ is where I see the full measure of my sinfulness punished, poured out on Jesus Christ so that I might be cleansed to the fullest measure of my sin. I'm aware of my sin. That keeps me humble. That keeps me from being a hypocrite. That keeps me from being a Pharisee who Jesus has to say, anybody sinless, y'all go ahead. Thirdly, I can either give unrelenting judgment or undeserved mercy. But I can't give both. I can either be unrelenting in my judgment toward people and myself, or I can give undeserved mercy. This week, you'll see it there at the bottom of your outline. Let me encourage you to put sin and shame into the hands they belong. That's not your hands. It's not my hands. It's the hands of the Savior. Here's what I want to do as, as we close. I, I want to, to have just a moment of, of what, I, what you might call directed prayer. And so it, it, you may not be a praying person, and, I, and I'm not going to ask you to pray out loud or anything like that, so you don't have to be nervous. But I would ask you for just a moment, if you would kind of play along at least and, and bow your head. Some of you had your eyes closed for a while. Bow your head. <clears throat> I love you anyway. Bow your head and, and, and close your eyes for just a moment. Here, here's what I want to do. I, I want to direct you toward two different types of sin this morning. 
And I want you to spend some time, just a couple of moments, in prayer about that. And so the first is the sin that's yours. Your own sin that right now you are punishing yourself for. That right now the Lord is convicting you of and saying, you know what, I don't take that lightly. And as I said, the remedy for that is to repent. And I wonder this morning if you would just say, Lord, you know what I keep doing. Whether it's in your thought life, in your words, in your actions, whatever it may be, Lord, you, you know the sin that you're bringing to my mind right now. And God, right now, I repent. And I turn from it. And just as you are there right now, I wonder if you just say, Lord, that's what I'm doing. I, this morning, my own sin is what's getting me. And God, I, I simply repent. I know that it's, it's not something you take lightly, but I know you've offered me another chance. And so, God, I'm going to take it. And I repent. What's that sin in your life that you need to repent of? For some, it's the sin of unbelief. And this morning, you need to place your faith in Jesus Christ. And you say, I repent of my unbelief in Jesus. And this morning, I believe. I believe he is the Son of God, that he died to forgive me of my sins, that he was raised again to give me eternal life. And this morning, you repent of sin. And secondly, I want you to think about the sins that have been committed against you. And that pain runs deep. And it overwhelms you. And you don't know what to do with it. And you've got a stone in your hand and you keep throwing it over and over and over at the person that has hurt you. The sin that's been committed against you. And I want to say to you this morning, the only remedy to that is to forgive. Take that sin of that other person this morning to the Lord and say, God, this morning, based on the cross of Jesus Christ that has forgiven me, I forgive that sin. God, I, I will deal with the consequences I know. But every time it comes up, I will declare again that sin is forgiven and I will no longer hold that debt against them. Be free this morning of your own sin and of the sins of others. Either repent or forgive.